I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we are discussing the evolving relationship between Europe and China. European attitudes toward China are hardening across the continent. Since the onset of the COVID-19 epidemic, perspectives on the challenges China poses to Europe have begun to converge across many European countries. Polls show that EU member states view China as a rival, but also as a partner. There's growing concern about Chinese policies in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and the uneven economic playing field. Beijing appears to have recognized the negative trajectory of its ties with Europe, and it dispatched its top diplomats, Foreign Minister Wang Yi and Politburo member Yang Jiechi, in back-to-back visits to several European countries in late August and early September. And then days later, Chinese President Xi Jinping participated in a virtual summit with multiple European leaders. To discuss the shifting dynamics of Europe-China relations and the prospects for better transatlantic cooperation on policy toward China, I'm joined by Miko Hortari. Dr. Hortari is the executive director of Merix, a leading German think tank and the largest European think tank with an exclusive focus on China. His research focuses on China's foreign policy, China's relations with Europe, and global economic governance and competition. Welcome to the China Power Podcast, Miko. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me. So let's start with sort of a general sense about European attitudes toward China. How have they changed, and what are the primary drivers of the changes? Particularly this year, is the pandemic really central, or are other issues more salient? Right. I mean, as you said earlier, it's quite clear that public opinion, on average across Europe, has become much more negative vis-à-vis China and. The corona crisis is a driver of that. China's public diplomacy, mask diplomacy, also its relatively forceful approach to disinformation and approaches to member states during that crisis has certainly not created a lot of good press for China. Obviously, also the question about responsibility and behavior at home during that crisis. But there's many other aspects that really overlay that picture, and I think it's important to recognize also that obviously it's a longer-term trend. Where you have a you know growing disappointment in policymaking circles with China and the China-Europe relationship. Now again, Corona crisis was important, but maybe even more important is the fact that we don't make a lot of progress in our cooperation agenda with China. And the most visible, I think, um, aspect of that is that we've actually tried to negotiate a new cooperation agenda between the EU and China that was meant to replace. An old agreement on that,、uh, where we just list,、um, you know, the areas of cooperation, but、um, we haven't managed to do that. That's one part. But the critical aspect probably is more the fact that as the United States has failed a few years ago to get to an agreement with China on investment, we are about to do the same, or at least it's becoming extremely unlikely that the plans that were set out by Brussels, the European Commission. And supported, for instance, by the German government to get to an agreement this year in 2020, which everyone was、um, holding up as the outlook for EU-China in 2020, that's very unlikely.、Um, so the Corona crisis is a catalyst for a longer-term trend of growing disappointment in policymaking circles, but also, let's face it, a 
overall, since quite a long period, relatively negative picture of China among wider, the wider public in Europe. I was quite surprised when the EU came out with its strategic outlook paper last year that labeled China as a systemic rival. And it, it really seemed to echo the United States national security strategy that was issued in December of 2017 that labeled China as a strategic competitor and a rival. But of course, subsequent to the issuing of the U.S. paper, we really saw a toughening of policies toward China. Do you think that EU policies have reflected this assessment? And if not, you know, why is there this gap between the analysis and the policy approach? Well, first of all, at the risk of being a bit provocative here, I, I think it's very important to recognize that this is a pretty European process that has led to that uh, new assessment. It's not as a reaction to what has happened in Washington, at least not to my knowledge. And the second point is, despite the fact that you have this label of China being a systemic rival in, in that document, which is indeed quite important uh, for Europe. Let's be clear, it's, it's one third of how we describe China. So it's China being a partner, a competitor and a systemic rival at the same time. And it's an important new addition because I think indeed it reflects the fact that in many ways China is not on a trajectory, both domestically but also with its international behavior, also with regard to trade practices, etc., that we can consider China really as a partner or competitor all across the board. Human rights violations, Xinjiang, the Hong Kong issue certainly have now led also the EU Council, that is where all heads of governments come together in Brussels, has reiterated that indeed that trias is exactly what should describe our approach vis-a-vis -vis China. Is there a gap between the analysis and the overall policy approach? Yes, clearly. But again, it reflects that I think diversity of approaches that we continue to have more generally, despite having an action plan, which was part of that strategic outlook, obviously there's a gap with regard to deliveries that we are trying to set for ourselves. And overall, it's still a nascent European-China strategy that we see here. But um, if you look at the longer term trends, what you see is a convergence of European positions on China. And that's good. And I think we should start from that. I want to ask you a bit about China's approach to Europe. What do you see as China's objectives? What is China trying to achieve? Is it about driving a wedge between the United States and Europe? Is it really about uh, strengthening cooperation on specific issues? What do you see that China's trying to achieve? No, I think it's a pretty straightforward agenda, and it's about having access and a good trading relationship with a pretty large market, the European Union single market. So it's market access, it's access to technology, and it's capital and innovation potential and technology by European companies um, that are active on the Chinese market. At least that was the story for a long time. I also would not underestimate the fact that there's a genuine aspect to that partnership that is about learning and exchanges. So the Chinese have for quite a long time, indeed, on certain aspects of innovation management, for instance, look quite intensely at European approaches uh, as they have elsewhere. You know, there's a genuine intent, I think, at least there was for a long time, that there's something to be taken from the experiences from the European Union member states. And that was a source of partnership um, until recently, I would argue. But if you ask more about the geostrategic perspective of China on Europe, I think it's also quite straightforward. It's keeping Europe neutral, if possible, leaning towards China in that US-China conflict. 
and you know maintaining that perception also Europe being on the side of China on many issues internationally and then to put it a bit more bluntly as much as possible that Europe stays an open pliant largely irrelevant block that is a useful counterpoint against the US and generally stable i think that's mostly what beijing would see in europe So I mentioned the visits that took place in the recent months by Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi to Europe. What was the impact of those visits and uh, do you think that the Chinese were surprised by some of the negative reactions that they saw? Overall, I think the trips were perceived as an attempt to get relations back on track and also as a genuine signal again that China is taking Europe a bit more seriously. and it was important as a signal because we had a major EU China meeting happening so it was a preparation also for that at the same time being a signal that China cares but it was also an, a counterpoint against US travel diplomacy in that region which happened you know immediately before that visit now it didn't really work out as it is um, well known you know there was a level of coordination also among, between european member states on talking points on lines of um communication and the chinese got to hear the same litany of complaints basically in all capitals um requests for change with regard to the policy in hong kong even human rights issues xinjiang was mentioned also requests to not interfere in european affairs etc and you know doubling down on the current negotiations comprehensive agreement on investment climate etc where we have a positive agenda potentially with china so I think that was a relative success of European diplomacy vis-a-vis China because we at least managed to say relatively similar things. So what about the EU China summit that took place on September 14th? Were there any real significant outcomes? There was apparently an agreement signed on geographical indications. I myself see that as sort of like a placeholder because maybe there wasn't the progress that China wanted on the bilateral investment agreement. How do you see it? Yeah, let me take you a step back. I think you're absolutely right. There was not a lot of things that both sides could claim um, as an achievement and um, The 14th September meeting was meant to be a pretty large diplomatic event, an EU 27 member state um, heads of government meeting with Xi Jinping personally. It's nothing that we do usually. It's not the usual EU-China summit. And it would have happened under the German Council presidency in the EU. And, you know, Chancellor Merkel talked about it already last Christmas. You know, that would be a highlight of her presidency um, or Germany's presidency. Obviously because of corona, but also simply because of the fact that we didn't manage to produce any significant outcomes. The council was um, not cancelled, but postponed. That's the official language. And we had a virtual meeting that, um, you know, was not that productive. But as you mentioned, the geographical indications, it cannot be a placeholder for substantive comprehensive agreement on investment, which is, by the way, more ambitious than the one that the United States tried to negotiate in 2017. We actually have quite a significant um, SOE disciplines, for instance, in, that are um, important. But geographical indications, I mean, to be short, um, you've probably had some champagne uh, or beer from Munich or Parma ham or feta cheese. It's exactly about that. It's, it's an agreement for food exporting countries to have their... IP or you know basically protected for the regional origin of certain uh, types of foods and um, that's important for exporting countries i don't think it replaces a substantive agreement on investment 
I'd like to ask a little bit about European concerns about China's human rights record, and particularly, you know, its violations in Xinjiang, as well as the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong. And during the Trump administration, the issues relating to human rights have really only come to the fore this year, because I think that prior to that, President Trump just didn't want them to get in the way of a trade deal. But for Europeans, you know, human rights has always been very high on the agenda. And so I wonder, do you think that Europeans are going to balance these concerns about human rights with the desire to maintain their economic ties with China? Does Beijing try to use this to get some leverage over Europe? Is there any progress made in human rights dialogues between Europe and China? Uh, I think the only progress probably is that we're starting to have them again after a period where this was not possible, which is not real progress, obviously. There is always the narrative, at least, that you know countries like Germany are successful with regard to individual cases in the background of quite severe human rights violations or individuals simply to get them out of prison and bring them somewhere else out of the country, which is not really about the more systematic and systemic aspects of the human rights violations that we're talking about in Xinjiang and um, also potentially the national security law in Hong Kong, which is a different beast. But uh, how do countries approach that? I think as most countries internationally are trying to compartmentalize to some extent, speaking up, but not too loudly. And, you know, there's attempts also across Europe, I think, as internationally everywhere to look at human rights violations in corporate supply chains, which obviously then um, has an implication for the type of business that you can do in China, particularly in, the, in Xinjiang. But beyond that, I think the most effective and important attempt is to continue to raise these concerns in international organizations and to use the United Nations as a platform. And there, Germany and other European countries, uh, sometimes together with the United States, play an important role in actually forming these coalitions that actually speak out and try to get access, try to get information and form a counter-alliance sometimes, I think, against also those countries that increasingly are becoming more silent on these issues. So with the hardening of views in Europe, you know, some might expect that we can have more transatlantic cooperation in our policies toward China. I I certainly hope that's the case, but we probably shouldn't overestimate the degree to which there is a convergence between European capitals and Washington. So where do you see the convergences and the divergences and the potential for greater coordination and cooperation? Look, I think there is a lot of overlap. And if you listen to what Brussels, Paris, Berlin and other member states are saying on the trade issues that we have in our relationship with China and the standard language these days is uh, we absolutely share the assessment that is from Washington, but we don't share the approaches. So, you know, if that's true, I think we have a lot to work on. And also, frankly, we, we do that, right? I mean, it's not the most preferred mode of operation currently in Washington to work through the WTO and also the trilateral that we have um, between Japan, the European Union and the United States on trade issues, IP issues, etc. is and could become much more important if Washington would take it more seriously. Um, that's not the case at the moment. 
everyone is hoping that we can go back to a more serious mode of engagement with the WTO, inside the WTO, although everyone recognizes that there are issues with that framework and that Washington will not just simply go back to the old mode of trying to work through this institution. So, but generally on trade issues, I think we see eye to eye and we, we have a lot of common interests and we just did not manage to um, pull through together on these issues. Although, let's face it, on very important issues, albeit technically, um, the question, for instance, whether China is a market economy or not, or is recognized as that in the WTO framework, we've landed on the same side of history, right? Um, and that's important. It's a good starting point. Um, on um, tech issues, it's going to be more competitive, I think, obviously, also the relationship between the United States and, and Europe. But it, there is, you know, as you know, quite significant efforts happening where an alliance of OECD or like-minded countries could work together more effectively, hopefully, on issues such as tech standards. Uh, also, just to make sure that our industrial policies that we all are obviously relaunching are not too competitive, but more geared towards actually competing with China in many ways. You're a little diplomatic in your answers, so I'm going to ask you a little bit more pointedly. Do we have to have a change in administrations in the United States in order to have closer cooperation between Europe and the United States and our approach to China? So if we end up with four more years of Trump, or you think we'll see further deterioration, even though Europe's concerns about China are very similar to those of the United States? I mean, it's hard to say whether under a Trump administration it's actually possible to get to some more productive um, collaboration. And let me talk about that scenario first and then about a Biden scenario. You know, also below the leadership, um, I think there has been quite a lot of work that has been done together. And even someone like Secretary Pompeo has recently agreed that there should be a dialogue between the European Union and United States on China. That's something that is of interest to Europeans. I'm quite sure that we wouldn't manage to pull that off under a new Trump administration because it would just be again so disruptive and erratic um, that Europeans simply don't um, that approach. Even more drastically, if you ask me for that, um, I think Germany and the European Union are probably a set of countries that will suffer most from a continued Trump administration in many ways, um, because um, the Trump administration has been undermining principles that we really care about, that makes collaboration on any other issues, even if that's so strategically important, just very, very difficult. In a Biden scenario, if he comes through on issues such as, you know, working more with allies, building back uh, in terms of the trust that is required, also working more through multilateral institutions, et cetera, et cetera, there are few barriers, I think, for a more collaborative approach also vis-a-vis China. I also wanted to ask a question about the recent Indo-Pacific policy guidelines that were issued in September by Germany's federal foreign office. There was obviously an emphasis on multilateralism, urging NATO to expand ties with Japan and South Korea. So it seems like it's a pretty significant policy paper. What does it tell us about Germany's approach to the Indo-Pacific? And maybe is there a possibility some other capitals are going to release this kind of a paper? Do you anticipate that security issues will become more important? Or am I exaggerating the impact or potential impact of this paper? 
Um, very good questions. Well, generally, I would say policy papers tend to be less relevant than we think they are. But in this case, I think, you know, what it certainly reflects is a change in thinking in, in, in Berlin. And, you know, so it's important. It, it comes two, three years after France has issued a, a, a similar strategy on the Indo-Pacific. And it is meant to be explicitly as the basis of a joint approach now in the EU framework. So Paris and Berlin agree on that and they want to jointly push forward to have a European position on the Indo-Pacific, which is not the same Indo-Pacific that Washington is talking about and not the same one that probably countries in the region are talking about. But it is um, a recognition clearly of the strategic importance of that region. It comes late, but it comes. It's about developing a stronger regional footprint and basically has two key messages. One is we need to work more with partners to work on common challenges, climate change, regional organizations, counter dis disinformation, maritime security. So issues where, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap between what generally countries in the region uh, want and expect from us, because they also want to have alternatives in that great power struggle uh, that plays out in the region. It's also quite aligned in many ways with interests, I think, of Washington or key um, like-minded partners such as Australia, India, Japan, in many ways. Uh, and the second key message is, you know, there's not so much China in that strategy. Uh, and that obviously for Germany is quite a surprise, right? It is exactly about the diversification of relationships in that region. And you, you hear that all across the board. You hear it in policy circles. You hear it in business. We need to diversify our Asia policy. And that's good. It's a very important um, development. Now we have to follow up with action that will first happen in collaboration with Paris and in the Brussels framework. And then we need to see what actually comes down from it. Finally, look into your crystal ball, if you will, and uh, tell our listeners what you think is the prognosis for Europe's relations with China in the coming years? Where do you think these relations are going? What are the main variables that are going to affect the course of uh, Europe's ties uh, with China? I think as it has been in the past years, the most important and decisive factor for that is the trajectory of China, because that's the cause and I think the root cause for many of the changes in policy that we've seen over the past months. And so as we cannot really predict exactly where China is going, I still think we have a relatively good understanding that it is certainly not going to be a course that makes it easier to partner with China. On the contrary, I expect that China will be more radical internally and also externally in many ways. And I also expect that US-China conflict um, will certainly not go away also under a Biden administration. And uh, that means that China and baiting the leadership there will be under pressure in many ways, which doesn't make it a good partner. Um, so that's that's the basic trajectory, which also means that, you know, EU-China relations will suffer from that. There was a very small group of policymakers who thought that Europe might benefit from that US-China conflict, but I think that perception is completely gone. No one thinks that. And it's certainly also absolutely false. There's a possibility for a slightly more optimistic outlook, and that would depend on two things. Well, three maybe. Do we get that comprehensive agreement on investment? And there is a possibility that this might still happen under Chancellor Merkel's leadership, basically. So she has another year being in the government, and it's possible. Theoretically, it's possible, and I think negotiations have progressed. Um, it would change the trajectory, um, because that means you can have 
negotiated solutions together with China, which currently no one, I think, claims that this is really possible. Second factor is economic recovery patterns. Uh, China is doing okay, and that changes the perception of everything. It makes a difference where companies look for, for growth, also in policymaking circles. And I think the third point, obviously, the U.S.-China relationship as a factor, because if under a Trump administration, U.S. international behavior continues on the trajectory where it is currently. I'm not saying that Europe will look more for China as being a partner, but it will necessarily work more with China on issues that just require international cooperation. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Miko Hortari, who is executive director of Merrick's leading thinker on China, not just in Europe, but also globally. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Bonnie.